How's it going, everyone? This is Coach Jarrell, uh, taking over the MC position for Phil this week. I believe he's at a wrestling competition for not himself, but for some of his younglings. I'm not sure if it's his son or if it's his daughter who's competing this week, but, or maybe both. Um, so it's just me and Mike this morning. We got a couple of topics we're going to discuss, but I'll let Mike go ahead and introduce himself and yeah, go from there. Dr. Mike Nelson, I'm social professor at the Kerrigan Institute and creator of the Flex Diet Cert and the Physiologic Flexibility Cert, or Physiologic Flexibility Cert, opens again March 20th through March 27th, 2023. If you want to learn all about the effects of cold water, sauna, horrible intervals, long, slow distance, breathing techniques, and how to be more resilient, anti-fragile, recover faster, uh, check it out. It's just physiologicflexibility.com. And I was presenting in Vegas this past um, Monday, Tuesday. So if my voice sounds a little bit weird, that's uh, probably what it was from. So it was at the Real Coaches Conference. Shout out to Iran for awesome work on it. And it was Really fun. There was a hundred and, I think he had 170 people there in person, had a bunch of people virtual, and I did a talk on metabolic flexibility, how to use fat for body composition, and carbohydrates for performance. And yeah, I had like, I think, 50 plus people at it each time, so I was super excited about that. And yeah, lots of other speakers there, and then got to learn a lot, hang out, met a lot of super cool coaches. It was actually almost 80% females, I think, that were there, which was uh, pretty cool to see. And yeah, lots of fun. Got back. I got with our buddy, Dr. Zach Couples, on Wednesday night. And yeah, I got back uh, Thursday. And the other night, I slept 11 hours. So I'm almost back to feeling human again. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the real coaches. Uh... Yeah, the real coaches Nothing. summit. Yeah, it was the first time. Yeah, it was the first time you put it on, actually. So I think for, yeah, for the first time doing that, I I think it went really good, and it was it was nice because everything was kind of in the same place. It was at the Virgin Hotel in Vegas, and it was on a Monday, uh, Tuesday, which kind of screwed me up because I told I don't know how many people have a good weekend on like Monday, but. <laughs> <laughs> I lost track of what time it was. Yeah, all the food was great. He had breakfast and lunch provided both days and at an open bar for a couple hours from like 6.30 to 8.30 uh, both nights. And it was fun because you could all kind of hang out in that area. The Virgin is the it used to be the Hard Rock Hotel, I think. They just redid everything a couple of years ago. But it's only like three miles from the airport. It's a little bit off the strip, which was fine. Um, but for the event, it was great because all the presentation rooms are right there. They provided food in the same area. Open bar was just, you know, another room, just a short walking distance away. It was kind of nice. Everyone was in the same area. There was time between each talk. You could, you know, hang out and have conversations and not necessarily uh, miss the next talk. And it was fun. It was nice to see lots of people haven't seen in a while. People like uh, Ellie Gilbert, who Paradoxically, I've never met in person yet, despite having known for many years. And yeah, it was a lot of fun, a little, a little bit tiring. As I was saying, I had to finish up 
uh, some final grades for Walsh University. So I was getting up at 4.30 each morning to try to get those done and some client stuff and some other things before, you know, everything got started uh, with the talks. But, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Uh, last comment was uh, <laughs> we got there uh, the night before and then had the two days of the conference Slept in a little bit the next day, and when I went to lift Wednesday afternoon, I was walking, and I'm like, oh, my God, I have not set foot outside for a single second since <laughs> I arrived. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I don't yeah. even gamble. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, wow, those casinos really suck you in. It's like, oof. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that every time any – I mean, I've been in a lot of places with weightlifting just for competitions and stuff. I feel like that oh, every sure. time. It's like people are like, oh, yeah, you went to Orlando? And it's like, yeah, I saw yeah. a convention. You know, yeah, I saw I a convention it. site. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was it. Vegas. Uh, last time we were in Vegas, it actually wasn't too bad because we, with the USAW thing, we got free tickets to the um, UFC experience. So we got to go over there, and then they had uh, – yeah. Like right in the other spaces, they had like boxing and then uh, jujitsu over there, like the national oh, nice. meets. So it was all like one thing. So that was kind of cool, but yeah, I get that for sure. That just like I don't know where you just live off fluorescent lighting for days at a time. Yeah, yeah, it's, it was kind of weird. And Wednesday we were gonna go somewhere, but I was like, well. We are going to visit uh, Mike Mahler, but he had stuff going on, and I just contacted him at the last minute because I totally spaced out that he's been living in Vegas for quite a while. And then I'm like, well, I had a lot of clients, stuff to get caught up on and some other things to finish. So I yeah, just did that, relaxed for a while, went to the gym, and then, like I said, went out with our buddies at Couples at night and got up early the next morning and, and flew back. So it was kind of a it was a short trip, but he's planning on doing it again next year, so if any coaches are interested, stay stay tuned for that, and I would highly recommend it. All right, so today I have uh, just a couple topics. First one, we kind of touched on a little bit last week with uh, myokines. Essentially, I would let's group, we'll do a small grouping of just exercise and training this effect on really just the brain or happiness in general. Um, so I had a client who brought it up to me uh, and I had heard it before cause I forget the lady's name. She's, she's a psychologist at like Stanford or something like that. And she's been doing a lot of work with, I know she has a, a book out, which I should remember off the top of my head, but um, basically about myokines and then, what they call the the hope molecule and just the uh, treating your your muscles as almost like an endocrine organ is like what the explanation was um that secretes this hope molecule when you either work out train but it doesn't seem like it's very specific to the type of training or anything um and its effect on just general happiness and overall i would say mental well-being as well um, so I'd, actually, Dr. Mike, this would be more in your wheelhouse in terms of 
you know, actually having seen at least some of the research, I think it's, you know, within the last, what, decade that this has been more thoroughly investigated, I think, or at least resurgence of it. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I'm curious yeah. your thoughts on it. Cool. Uh, I was trying to look up the author's name, but we'll, we'll find it. I think I found it last week, actually. Uh, yeah, Kelly McGonagall. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. And I was just looking super quick to see if I could find what she calls. Oh, she's just, I think she's just referring to myokines in general. I didn't know if. Oh, okay. yeah. She said researchers are calling myokines hope molecules because they appear to work at the brain level to help it recover from stress. So that was the rationale behind that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've kind of known muscle as a metabolic organ for quite a while. <clears throat> and there's lots of regulatory factors that are secreted. Um, some of them help regulate exercise. So one of them for aerobic exercise is probably one of the main ones, something called PGC one alpha. Um, for lifting and strength and hypertrophy, there's a bunch that are secreted, but they, that process tends to be a little bit more local, dare I say. Um, they did some old studies, <clears throat> well, probably not that old. There was some in the seventies, eighties, and even mid nineties of squatting mouse studies and uh, hind limb suspension models. And what they found was, if you had enough overload on the muscle in a mouse model, you could do all sorts of horrible things to little guys. You could castrate them, put them on low-protein diets, take out their thyroid. And because they're walking around on their front limbs all the time, so high limb suspension model, their tails usually pulled up on this little roller thing. So their back legs have an atrophy model, and their front legs have an overload model. So you can compare it within the same little mouse model. What they see is, as long as you have a, a lot of overload, which this is massive overload 24-7 for the most part, you can do horrible things to them, and those muscles still get bigger. Now, granted, if you provide more protein and calories and other things, is it beneficial? Yes. Um, but you can't drive that hypertrophy and strength to absolute zero. So I just actually gave that. A, I had that slide in my talk again on Monday and Tuesday, even though I was speaking on nutrition. If you get the overload component correct or as best as you can, you can kind of get away with a lot of other sins, right? We've probably seen people that train pretty good or just a hyper responder to training. And yeah, some of the other stuff they do is probably questionable and they seem to do pretty good. Um, and when they first looked at it, they were primarily looking at aerobic models for muscle as more of an endocrine organ. Um, because one, it's much easier for scientists and human subject studies <coughs> to put people on treadmills, put them on bikes, you know, put them on a metabolic card to do biopsy. It's much easier to do those studies in the lab than some type of weight training. And then historically exercise in terms of aerobic exercise has been used more. So we just have more data and more comparison. If you're trying to publish a study, it's usually easier to get it published if it's just a little bit novel, but it's kind of based on what we already know. And a lot of you know people are incentivized to publish 
studies. That's part of their academic, what they're graded on. So a lot of times it's just generally easier to do aerobic stuff than it is weight training. That's changing now. There's a lot more weight training studies that have been done now, especially the last couple of decades, which is great. Um, but for the myokines, I think the last one I saw, I think I talked about last week, was irisin. Um, that was a relatively new one. I'm sure we'll discover new ones that we just haven't looked for yet or, or haven't found. And the latest, like what like Kelly was talking about, is <clears throat> it now appears that we're understanding where these molecules kind of go more. And it looks like a lot of them have very specific effects upon the brain. Uh, the main one is BDNF. It's a brain-dried neurotrophic factor. Um, but there are all the other ones that we thought were maybe just kind of local or just having sort of uh, body-wide effects are now probably modifying the brain. Um, even things like <clears throat> the the runner's high is pretty well established now and has been for a while that it's uh, an endogenous endocannabinoid receptor that's uh, that gets hit in the brain. So it's released most likely from the muscle, it appears, and then they travel up to the brain and have effects there. Uh, the main one, there's a couple ones, one of the main ones being anandamide. Um, so we're learning more and more about those all the time. Uh, some of the stuff I've read, at least from the conferences, it looks like weight training will probably have similar effects in terms of mood regulation and <clears throat> potentially slight antidepressive effects, um, as does aerobic exercise. A lot of that data is still pretty new. We don't know what, you know, protocols or sets or reps or anything or, you know, if all that does pan out and is replicated. But, you know, one thing I'm sure you've probably seen, too, is that it's very rare that I would see someone who has issues related to, you know, feeling good, maybe even potentially clinical depression, that their nutrition is pretty good, their sleep is good, and they do a fair amount of exercise. Obviously, there's going to be exceptions to that rule, but in general, like, I'd say much, much more rare. Unfortunately, like probably not the people listening to this podcast, but general population, you know, a lot of people are not very metabolically healthy, don't do a lot of exercise, and eat God knows what. Uh, last part is that there was a meta-analysis done, which unfortunately I haven't read, so I probably shouldn't mention it, but I think it was looking at the compiled effects of all SSRIs and was showing that it's not as high as what we think. Again, if you look at that data, there's a huge amount of, you know, inter-individual variability. Obviously, they're extremely useful for some populations, um, but the standard medical model is, oh, well, if you're not feeling good, we'll just give you this drug or we'll try that drug or we'll try something else. And that's just mostly because physicians have very little time to even talk to someone, like 10 to 15 minutes at most. So you're kind of stuck with that as an only option. And again, I think it can be extremely useful for some people, but uh, to me, it's kind of more things you would try as kind of a last resort, not like the the first resort. It's like, well, maybe Bob's butt looks like a couch cushion and he doesn't move hardly at all and sleeps six hours a night. Yeah, shocker. No wonder he doesn't feel very good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I always look at medicine, like the, the baseline philosophy at least should be, right, that it's a, an immediate intervention. But it's always used as 
like a long-term bridge or solution. Yeah. Like, so once they, you know, once you, SSRIs are a little bit different in terms of, but they act like once you're on, you're on. They treat it like that. Like they're almost oh, like yeah, you're yeah. just going to be on forever as opposed to like, let's use this to leverage our way out of this position and then get into a healthy, healthier lifestyle or whatever. Um, yeah. And I, I mean, I tried to explain, I mean, some of the part of the question was a little bit of frustration with, and I would just say the medical field in general, um, which in that I'm going to, I'm including various therapies, basically anyone who accepts like insurance really. Um, and their, I don't know, kind of attitude towards, uh, any intervention that doesn't have to do with like really just medicine. Right. And this was like the question started with that. It was like, Oh, I didn't know, you know, that exercise actually has, you know, at the foundational level ways to improve your mood. But they're really frustrated with the idea that no one is there. Like no one says that in their medical profession. They just kind of generally say it sometimes where it's like, you know, are you exercising? Are you eating right? And then people will answer yes or no. And then that's it. That, that's the end of that. Yeah. You know, but here's the, I, I mean, this is my explanation to her was part of it's being curious. I feel like curiosity is a huge part of really just in general. So like once you start being curious and you're like, oh, okay, but like now, you know, and then now you just have to like do right. Yeah. And so it's like, it was just kind of one of those things. And I, in terms of myokines, I have, like, even when I was in school, we didn't really touch on a whole lot of any of the, anything physiological that had to do with the mind. There was just a separation between those classes, right? Like, we never had, like, something that we either were doing ex-phys or we were doing psych. You know, we weren't integrating anything. And I think that's kind of the norm with most people's education in general. So. It's not something that I would even expect a doctor to like. I mean, it would be crazy to me if a, like a doctor was like, yeah, I'm recommending you to this gym. You know yeah. I mean? Yeah. That'd be nice. Wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like that would, I would think, you know, that would be the first step is like having trainers or whoever in your network as a doctor, which I almost would think that's nearly unheard of. I, I mean, I've seen a few, but usually it's like PT related or injury related. And so that was kind of the nature of the, the question, like understanding, you know, what they were, like, you know, why. And I just kind of explained the medical profession is not the place to go for that kind of stuff. Um, but it's definitely interesting. I feel like it's a growing field in physiology, like just in terms of like the actual research going into it. Obviously, there's if there are various molecules that we haven't discovered yet, it's going to be you know, where the quote unquote bigger breakthroughs will come from. So hopefully there's plenty of research in the coming years on such things. Yeah. And an older book that <clears throat> doesn't directly talk about that, but is called uh, spark by Dr. John Ratley. And he does a really good job of explaining all the benefits to just physical exercise, especially more for kids. Um, and in there, they cite a study for cognition that was done, you know, cause a lot of 
kids don't even have Wyatt anymore. Like they're building schools without playgrounds. It just seems bonkers to me, especially when historically they had time dedicated to that. Um, but they did an experiment where they gave them a math test beforehand. And then for a full year, the standard group got uh, one hour of math plus one hour of recess. And the other group, instead of recess, got two hours of math. And so they literally got twice the amount of, you know, schooling for math. They had them do a standardized test at the end. <clears throat> and the kids who had recreation and got to move around did better on the test, <laughs> despite having half the amount of time spent on math, which makes sense if you spend any time around kids in a school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I think there's this thing of like, well, if we just, you know, teach them longer, they need to sit in their chairs, blah, 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 all this other stuff. Eh, probably not. Like there's some super interesting early data on, you know, standing desks and allowing kids to move around and whatever. And then I, I also just wonder how much of going through that whole process, it just feels like movement is almost like a beat out of kids, like not encouraged. And yet we've got people that don't exercise very much. We've got all all sorts of, you know, metabolic syndromes, obesity, cardiovascular disease, et cetera. It's super high. So this feels like we're going in the wrong direction. Yeah. That is for sure. Especially since I started working with kids in just um well, not started working with kids, but just this resurgence, like, so I started marketing the kids first, so I got a bunch of new younglings in the gym. Nice. Um, but just, like, I mean, basic stuff. I, I spend a lot more time than, at least in my early earlier days, like, just on the, the basics of, like, you know, the bear crawl and, like, that kind of movement. Which yeah. you would think for most kids would be like, oh, yeah, like that's the first thing. But it takes us, I mean, kids who are outside of the program and, you know, come from either a, a limited background. But some of them are even in sports, sports like wrestling and stuff like that. And I'm like, all right, let's go bear crawl. And it's a struggle. Like even seeing, you know, where they try to like, it's hard to explain over the podcast, to be honest. But it's like they try to step with the same side, foot and hand. Yeah, it's a ipsilateral it, versus contralateral. Yeah, so they do this little, I don't know, just like a, that's almost like a Russian bear march. I don't know how to explain it. <laughs> <laughs> Very uncoordinated. Just like, yeah, but just that like each side of the body moving independently and different, like that is like, it, it it's not even connected. So, so just the general like physical preparedness of kids, and I think Phil and I bring this up all the time too, is just much lower. Like, than, and I'm, I mean, I, so this would be what, 12, 12 years for me, like, like actually having younger athletes that, you know, grow up through the program. And yeah, I mean, I've, I, even now, from now to when I started before, like 12 years ago, it's worse than that. Like, so it's a steady decline with my small sample size. 
but yeah i mean from i don't really train any kids anymore i did for a while in the past but <clears throat> from the coaches i've talked to it it every year it just seems like it unfortunately is getting even worse which it's kind of hard to believe <laughs> i agree uh well speaking of movement restrictions talking about gaining weights for well, sports not related to lifting, directly related to lifting, I should say. Um, just because in the last, it was last week that the John Jones fight was, and this was his first fight coming up from, I don't know, was that light heavyweight? I think and so, yeah. Going to heavyweight, I'm not sure of his exact numbers. I know he's like 250 now. I don't know where he, like what his normal weight was, you know, before. Right. Um, like his walking around weight. Like, and who like even knows? Spiders, they cut. 205 maybe, but I could have just completely made that up. Someone's yelling at their uh, <laughs> headphones yeah. right now. But they, it's usually like he, they fight at 205, but they cut from. Right, you know, exactly where he cut from, yeah. So, but. This, this would be a no cut situation, which is probably, that probably feels good. Like, that's probably the best feeling is going from the, uh, you know, a weight class that has a top to the plus class is just not having to cut. Yeah. But, so a comment was made in the post conference presser basically about his abs and that, you know, I don't know, I guess his, physique didn't look as good as they expected it to or something. <laughs> and he made a response about this good thing. This is not a bodybuilding competition. They talked a little bit about his strength numbers going up. And he's like, I feel stronger and moving better. Um, but especially with you here on the podcast, I figured we could discuss the challenges of moving from a lighter weight class into a heavier weight class when it comes to a sport that's not directly related to strength. Now, I know there's some fuzziness in that comment, but it's not immediately apparent that strength is, you know, the big deal in fighting. And if you ask fighters, they always are like, strength doesn't matter at all. So I'm curious <clears throat> your thoughts on that process going from light heavyweight to heavyweight and some of the challenges you've experienced with athletes doing something similar and how they move, challenges with movement, anything like that. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, obviously he won, so, you know, that's yeah. good to see. So you could argue whatever they were doing was definitely appeared to work for now. And I want to say, didn't he take like two and a half years? It was a long period of time. I don't remember when his... <laughs> I don't have the stats in front of me when his last fight was, but to me, I think that's like the biggest key of just taking your time. And obviously he's a, a freak athlete. There's no question about that. And then making sure that the speed and power and obviously conditioning are there because you can, you can just add weight to someone, but doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be a better athlete per se um there's even debate in like the literature if you're looking at uh like 100 meter 200 meter sprinters about like calf size so if you've ever looked at like elite sprinters most of them don't have very 
huge lower legs. Like they're obviously pretty jacked, but yeah, lower leg tends to be smaller, right? So there's some arguments that just adding a bunch of mass there isn't going to translate to performance. It might actually hinder performance, at least for running at top speed. Um, so you're always looking at <clears throat> the trade-off of uh, a muscle that's bigger is obviously going to have more contractile components, so therefore has a potential of being stronger. And in general, if you look at generalized data, bigger muscles are definitely stronger. Um, however, your priority priority is more speed than actually power. And again, power does have a factor of strength in it, but also a factor of time. So if you could take someone and add more strength to them, you have the potential of making them more powerful. It just depends upon how you train that, which is a little bit more on the nervous system side. Um, so I think, as far as I can tell, as an outsider, um, so I think he was trained at, at Stan Efferding's gym, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I just saw Stan actually this past uh, last couple of days. Got to talk to him for a little while, but he had a take off because he said he uh, left the kids at home, so he had to get back home right away. I <laughs> mean, <laughs> um, it looks like they, you know, took their time, you know, probably as far as I can tell, prioritized, you know, moving more weight and then making sure that the athletic component is still there and obviously conditioning is there. And as you mentioned, you know, since there really isn't any weight cut, you don't really probably have to get super lean. Right. I mean, if you look at athletes across the board, like strongman is a good example. They're generally not super lean, but they're pretty strong, pretty powerful. Granted, that's not the absolute of speed and power, but there's a fair amount of component to that. There's conditioning, especially for doing medleys. Um, so I think you generally only see very lower body fats in sports that have uh, weight classes. Um that's changed over the years, too. Like, even in the NFL, like, you'll see some variation uh, there now compared to what you used to. Um, but people forget, like, even if you're a lineman, like, there's a huge component of speed and power to that. And I think for just the limited thing I've seen with some athletes is, I don't know, like, some athletes just perform better with a little bit more body fat. Other athletes are... I don't know, just freaks and can handle a much lower percentage of body fat and still perform really well. Um, I'd be curious what you've seen, but what I've seen is that even when you're doing most things correctly, I don't know what it is, but I see a fair amount of variation there. Or some people, even when you're doing it correctly, you take your time, you know, you're trying to get them significantly leaner. Some people's performance just tanks much earlier than, than others. I don't, I don't know why that is, if it's a genetic and nervous system component or whatever, but I think there's a fair amount more variability there than, than what we realize. Yeah, actually, weightlifting is pretty interesting on this because there's, you know, obviously a speed component. Um, but, like, coaching-wise, coaching, coaching wise, people kind of think of weight classes as height classes in weightlifting. So it's like if you're above five nine. And really about above five ten to six foot, they're just automatically gonna be like heavyweight. Mm. And like I actually so my best numbers that I've hit, I hit much lighter. And like when I went when I got heavier, like I you know, I've done this twice essentially. 
me personally, I never like my Olympic lifts never like took off. Like my squat and bench and stuff, you know, took off, but like marginal improvement on the Olympic lifts and it kind of makes weightlifting training a lot tougher, which I've only seen a few athletes who was like, if you just like let them go unlimited in weightlifting, that they just really, it was like a one to one. I guess, you mm. know, they're putting a, you know, a pound on, and there's a kilo on the bar, you know, that kind of thing. And so it is, you know, and some people can also be, and this, I haven't seen this a ton in weightlifting, like weightlifting, you'll have, there's some reasonable, uh, variation, but you'll see uh, like taller athletes who stay in lighter weight classes a lot more than you would in like powerlifting. Mm. Like in powerlifting, I don't think you would see like some of the, like there's some like taller, skinnier, like I would say skinny athletes who still do really well in Olympic weightlifting where you really probably wouldn't see that in powerlifting quite as much. Um, so part of it, I think just the speed can kind of, at least helps with that. Sure. And I think, I mean, I would explain it as more like kind of neural springing athletes usually do way worse with a little bit extra weight. Like keeping them light is always better. And I think that goes even to like the sprinting stuff. Yeah. Like naturally the people that you put into sprinting events, like they come to, you know, do track practice or whatever, and then they're pretty fast right out of the gate. They're like springy, almost Carl Lewis type athletes, right? Yeah. For lack of a better reference anyway. And then like the big, strong, powerful athletes, it's like they almost automatically move them to other things. So it's kind of a function of just the practice itself. So I, I think it kind of depends. I, I've never like pushed hard the idea of like you have to like put on a ton of muscle, like you have to put on a ton of mass to move up into a better level of weightlifting. To me, it just happens naturally. And some people, it's just like they just start moving better. You, they're getting a little thicker. Bam, they're moving immediately moving better. Mm-hmm. Where some people, it's just like it's a drag and then. Training sucks and everything sucks. So some of that can be mental too. Just like, I mean, it does suck. If you go from lighter and you're feeling pretty good, but your lifts aren't going up and you go from that to like having to, you know, take a deep breath and try to get <laughs> your shoe tied in one, in one go, <laughs> you know, that, that is kind of frustrating. And then you're just more tired in general, I think. And so like kind of the, your overall vibe goes down a little bit. And I think that obviously has an effect on some of the training process, but yeah, I think weightlifting is a little bit different and I've only seen it maybe a couple of times where it was like, yes, put on weight and your total will explode. And then that is like pretty much what happened. Like every kilo they put on the scale was a kilo they put on the bar, you know, or, or more, but and I've seen people who was like put on 20, 30 pounds and then barely put that on the bar, you know, which that's not a good trade off, right? Yeah. Do you use like an RSI, like reactive strength index to try to quantify anyone's springiness or do you just kind of already kind of have athletes that want to do Olympic weightlifting? So you're just kind of stuck with kind of what you get, so to speak. 
I mean, for weightlifting, I'm just stuck with what I got. I essentially teach everyone the lifts and then, cause weightlifting is one of those things I think if you, it has more to do with like you getting interested and curious about it. Yeah. Because you could like, I mean, even if you watch like a, you know, a world event from uh, start to finish, right? You're going to see so many different levels of speed. Like some people are way more strength than speed. And then some people more speed than strength. Like I always look at the, like the Colombians, they seem to select for like that really springy, super fast athlete. Mm. And that 70s, you know, in that, in that 60 to 80 kilo range. Right. But if you look at the, you know, Chinese athletes, a lot of them are not the fastest and they don't really, I mean, it, it's kind of an illusion. They don't move super fast, but they're very technically efficient. Mm-hmm. So, and incredibly strong. Like, so they put on a ton of strength and then they're, they're huge. They got, you know, giant muscles. And I think the drugs are about even with these two clubs. So I won't like, I don't think that's yeah. a huge factor, but for one club, a 200 kilo, Clean and jerk is all speed. If they have to grind it out, it's not happening. Mm. Whereas, like, the, the Chinese team, it's, like, mostly strength. Those guys have a huge strength reserve. So there's enough variation that you can succeed in weightlifting without being the fastest athlete. And you don't necessarily have to be the, you know, strong slug either. There's enough variation you can kind of play around with. And – the more interested you are in the subject is the more you'll start to kind of feel it on the platform yourself. Cause you have to be curious. There's no other way in weightlifting. You're just like kind of doing what's on the, you know, what's on the board or whatever. And you're not curious about how you're moving, how you moved that weight this way, but you move that same exact weight, but it felt terrible and you don't try to feel it out. It makes it really tough for you to, like connect the dots for yourself, like on the platform. Yeah. And the number of lifts you do is just so limited. I mean, you have to be of a special mindset to do basically what three to four, maybe five. If you're being on the outside lifts over and over and over and over. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's the tough part too. I mean, for sport athletes, it's, they, once they connect the dots, like, oh, I power snatched more, and then I'm starting to feel like I'm jumping higher. You know, I squat more, I'm jumping higher. Once they connect the dots, then it's like they get engaged in the program. Yeah. Like, okay, now I get it. And then they'll start like, now you have to hold them back because it's like, this isn't a one-to-one forever. This is like, <laughs> you know, it's a one-to-one at first. I mean, for kids, I usually work backwards from like the double body weight number where I'd like to see them hitting a double bodyweight squat and like a bodyweight power snatch. If they're, if they've been with me for a while and are doing the Olympic lifts by the junior or senior year. And that's usually enough for any sport that I would put it like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't think you need yeah. more from high school. So if they go, if they get there, let's say they get there early and then they're like, Oh man, if I go from this four or five pound squat, to you know you know 450 now guess what how you know i'll be jumping and that that part is not the case yeah 
and you usually have to, you know, spend a little bit too much time on that 50 pound jump than it did to take you from 315 to 405. And then that 405 to 455, whatever that jump, it just takes more energy. And then each time this is the same thing, like to get from 455 to 500, you just have to spend more of your recovery money on lifting. And it just doesn't always like that part doesn't work out unless with the exception of throwing, throwing and the numbers are a little bit higher, but for most yeah, sports, rate of force development is probably going down too. So your transfer to your sport is probably going to be a lot less. Oh yeah. So no, I don't, I don't test anything like, cause I, within my warmups and like some of my jumping drills, I can kind of just pick up on like, Oh, this person, you know, is more reactive more springy than you know my other athletes that kind of thing it doesn't i mean the good part about it for me is like it doesn't mean anything in here like being more springy doesn't make doesn't necessarily mean that they perform better here in the gym so it kind of puts everyone on like an even playing field because they all kind of get i mean some people have you know more their genetics are a lot better for just building strength but yeah. and overall, you still have to, like, you know, try to, like, you know, hit the right positions and all that stuff. There's no, like, everyone has to go through that kind of process. You generally see, like, in weightlifting, I keep thinking of, like, Kendrick Ferris, where, in my opinion, do you think he was probably held down at lighter weight classes too long? Uh, with Kendrick... I don't know. I mean, you could argue I, either I, way. I was starting to hear that his cuts were getting really hard, mm. but he started doing weird nutrition stuff towards the end of his career too. Yeah, like, I know that that puts a big monkey wrench in everything. <laughs> yeah, so he started doing like, and then I think he finished his career doing like stuff at 105. Mm. But it, but it wasn't as good as his 94. But I think that might have just been age. Sure. Yeah, point. he's older too. Um, but yeah, I mean, so in that 94 kilo class was really tough. Like there were so many good 94 kilo lifters at that time where you have to like every meet you go to is like a huge battle. Mm. And like the 105 class was a little bit more open. I think from that standpoint alone, he would have been a little better at 105. But yeah, he started, I mean, cause he started doing, uh, I think he was doing vegan stuff at some point. Yeah. At the end of like, yeah. yeah. And I, I mean, I think that was like, you know, I don't know what was going on with that, but that was probably the bigger thing more so than like him staying light. But I did. And then this is only, you know, through the grapevine. I was hearing that his cuts were getting, really tough mm. like at the end of his career where it was like not only does he have to be on point with his diet not only is he doing kind of an intense you know water cut and then like really you know it's coming down to the wire every single time which in our sport at a two having a two-hour weigh-in makes that really tough like it is oh yeah I mean, you're definitely hoping for the best in terms of like what kilos you put on the bar on the platform versus like a, 
after a tough cut. And, and so I don't know what he was doing to like replenish or take stuff in, but I know he was affected on, um, on the platform just from those heavy cuts. Matter of fact, his, I mean, this is where I started hearing more about it was, uh, was it the Arnold? So it was 2011 Arnold when he passed out. Mm. So that clean and jerk that he, I mean, it was a clean and jerk that was, you know, high 90 percentage for what he's done in the gym or whatever. And he was squat jerking. And so makes it really, it looks actually fine, but then he's, you know, struggling with it for a while and just out, lights out. Oof. And then that was kind of when the swirl of some of the rumors started about the cuts being really tough for him. And that I can yeah. imagine. But uh, who knows? I mean, so it was just that 105 class and then 105 plus at the time. Mm, okay. I think for him, for him, he wanted to stay in the most competitive class because he likes you know, competing in that class. So I think that was probably the bigger deal for him personally was that he liked competing with those, those guys. Cause I mean, there was some crazy, the most entertaining weightlifting meet I've ever seen was at 90, it was 94 kilo class with Kendra Ferris. Nork Bardanian, Jared, uh, yeah, I don't know, but there was like four or five of them who were like pretty much Ian Wilson and they're all going back and forth with like American records and, you know, positioning. And it was like, that was the craziest class. Like that was the craziest session I've seen. Hmm. It was everything was within one to three kilos for the most part. Oh wow. Between oh, wow. five five guys who are going for gold. So but I haven't seen it where I'm not at a point where I would just say, you know, most people when they start out I have to get them to eat more in general, like when they start with me just training. But I'm not at a point where I really push the weight like going up weight classes that tough. Yeah. I, you know, it just kind of depends on weightlifting for most people. I want them to fill out their weight class. Like, but that's about as far as it goes for us. Now, if it's glaring, like, you're skin and bones and, <laughs> you know, then yeah, we're going up, but otherwise, and good luck getting girls to do that. Oh, oof, that would be hard. <laughs> that's definitely. The last question as we wrap up real quick. So do you find that the comment they made about John Jones, at least to me, it still seems like fitness to the general population is just body composition. Right. So, yeah. I mean, I've seen this with a guy I know who's, you know, a cover model for different magazines, natural guy. When he was really lean, he looked amazing for cover shoots. But if you saw him in street clothes, you're like, yeah. That guy definitely lifts, but he's not super big. But you see him on a cover, you're like, wow, that's impressive. But it just seems like, and he would tell you, he'd be the first to tell you that it's like, oh, yeah, my all my lifts are way, way down, <laughs> you know, <laughs> at, at, at that point. But yeah. it just seems like the the assumption in most people's brain is that body composition is 
the definition of fitness and the fact that someone may choose to have a slightly higher body fat because they're prioritizing performance, even with, you know, high level athletes who are paid for performance, that still seems like a foreign concept to most people, I guess. Oh yeah. I, you know, part of it I thought was, uh, so I think people see people who are just like kind of naturally heavyweight. <coughs> Because like the heavyweights that they are comparing him to are uh, like Francis Ngannou and yeah. he fought Cyril Gain, and those guys kind of fill out that weight class a lot better. Mm-hmm. Like they look leaner, carry more muscle mass. You know, and they're they, just complete freaks too. Yeah. So, and if you were to see them go down a weight class, they would look anorexic. Whereas John Jones was already down. Yeah. And so for him to get to that next weight class, I think was probably tougher in terms of like just main like having muscle mass and I don't think he'll ever at the heavyweight class I don't think he'll ever fill it out muscle you know muscle wise probably not yeah it just doesn't seem like that's within his you know frame so I think that's like the comparison is like oh well these guys look at they're like you know look at how quote unquote lean and muscular they are you know what's up with you whereas and I think he even brought up some of his he's like I'm squatting uh, some he has some he has a crazy squat and a crazy bench right now. Hmm. He brought up like his numbers. He's like I'm you know stronger, or, you know deadlifting or whatever. You know these numbers and it's like the first thing you guys ask about is like my muscle mass or whatever. <clears throat> but it's just one of those things I think you see in Ganu, you see Cyril Gain, you see. Some of the old heavyweights like Usman and <clears throat> Brock Lesnar. Yeah, Lesnar is the first guy I think of. Like, oh my God, you see that guy and you're like, you're you're yeah. not even human. Like, what's going on? <laughs> yeah, and so they they seem like you know they don't seem like you know there's extra fat necessarily, like a little bit extra fat, but it's not like they just seem like they fill in like fit that heavyweight class a little bit better. And I yeah. think John Jones' frame just doesn't – it's not – it's never going to be the aesthetic move for him to be that heavy. Yeah. I don't even think he was that – personally, I didn't think he was that lean at 205, you know? Like, yeah. it just seems like his body just wants to have a little bit more body fat on. But, yeah, it, does, it doesn't look traditional. Like, people think of those guys as, like, filling out heavyweight. Also, you're not going to see it as much anymore with all the USADA rules. <laughs> right. I mean, there's you know, most of these guys, as far as we know, are are clean or at least more heavily tested than almost any other organization, too. Yeah. So it's you know, with the out of competition testing, like it's. I mean, those those huge physiques, that 250 plus guy with abs, is not going to. That's going to be fewer and far between. Oh yeah, yeah. So, yeah. But, yeah, I think we can cool. wrap it up there. Sounds good. Cool. Catch you guys next week. All right. See you.